It's been five years since a state-of-the-art aircraft disappeared. Nobody expects a 777 to vanish. It just doesn't happen. Where is Malaysia Airlines Flight 370? Hundreds of loved ones gone missing. Years of searching. It's in exactly the most remote part of the world. The surprises. Debris found off the coast of Reunion Island in the Indian Ocean. The second piece of MH370's wreckage picked up. And setbacks. It was terrible. It felt like we were right back at the beginning again. Questions still unanswered. We need to know what happened. And the only way you're going to do it is to find the aircraft. There's just too much at stake here to say we're going to stop. Now, Vanished, the mystery of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. March 8, 2014, Kuala Lumpur International Airport. Just after midnight, the pilots of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 are preparing for takeoff. It's all about checklists in aviation. They're going through checklists. Miles O'Brien is a pilot and aviation analyst for CNN. It doesn't matter how mundane it is, how many times you've done it, you do it religiously because that is absolute foundation of safety in aviation. In the cockpit, 27-year-old First Officer Farik Hamid. This video shows him training on the 777. Flight 370 was his first time flying the aircraft without an instructor. So while his experience level might have been low on the aircraft, he was totally up to date on how to fly it. A lot of airline pilots tell me these are the best people to fly with because they just come out of rigorous training. Next to Farik, Zahari Shah, a captain with over 18,000 hours in the air and a stellar reputation. Captain Zahari and me, we go back about 30 over years. We started flying together. Nick Huslan is a former chief pilot for Malaysia Airlines. My wife is a chief stewardess. So I think if my wife's on board the aircraft, I would like Zahari to fly the plane then. Because I've got great confidence in the guy. And there is real confidence in the aircraft they're about to fly, the Boeing 777. It's a great airplane. It's got a sterling record of safety. That aircraft is actually the pinnacle of all the aircraft that I have flown. And the automation is just fantastic. For any critical electric or hydraulic system that would fail, there are two or three backup systems. After making their final preparations, the pilots are ready for pushback. At 12.32 a.m., the pilots taxi to the runway. 370-32 Cleared for departure. Flight 370 takes off for a five and a half hour scheduled flight to Beijing. The human control 
direct physical control on the controls will probably cease after the landing gear goes up, the flaps goes up, and it goes on autopilot. By 1 a.m., the crew and 227 passengers on board are cruising comfortably at 35,000 feet. Even the pilots can relax a little. The plane is basically now flying itself. There was no particular challenge there for a seasoned captain and that first officer to handle that flight without any problem. And at 1.07 a.m., all seems well, according to an automatic message sent from the aircraft's communication system called ACARS. Richard Quest is an anchor and aviation correspondent for CNN. Think of ACARS as a giant smartphone that will send out huge amounts of information via satellite or by radio transmission. Then at 1.19 a.m., a standard handoff with air traffic control as the plane leaves Malaysian airspace and enters Vietnamese airspace. Malaysian 370, contact Ho Chi Minh 120, decimal 9. Good night, Malaysian 370. The controller here in Malaysia tells him to speak to Ho Chi Minh and he says, good night, Malaysian 370, something I would do. There was no indication that anything had gone wrong. David Susi is a former safety inspector for the FAA. So for the first 40 minutes of this flight, up to that point, everything has been routine? Mm-hmm, yes. Everything was routine until now. Two minutes after talking with air traffic control, 40 minutes into the flight, the plane's transponder goes dark. The plane's transponder is effectively the instrument by which sends out a signal to air traffic control. It tells you what height it's at, which direction, and what speed it's traveling. Suddenly, this giant 777 is, is blind to the world. And there's no easy explanation for why it happened. Either it was intentional, and someone tried to turn all of those systems off at once, or the pilot was unable to communicate, kept from communicating, or there was a mechanical failure of some kind that took all those systems out at one time. Then, minutes after the transponder stops, the 777 makes an unexpected turn heading west and way off course. That the plane turned immediately after the transponder went off is completely inexplicable and very worrisome. Peter Goles is a former managing director of the NTSB. We don't know whether this was done voluntarily, whether it was done under duress, we simply have no idea. No idea what really happened, but Gold sees a red flag. It was completely out of the ordinary that there was no distress call. That the turn takes place and there's absolute silence, it means that somebody on that plane redirected it to a new course heading and uh, they were not telling anyone. Not telling anyone and never checking in with Vietnam air traffic control. The fact that the westerly turn happens at the point of handover between Malaysia and Vietnam, for many, is the strongest evidence that something nefarious was going on. You've investigated many incidents. Is that coincidence that everything seems to go wrong at this particular critical moment? 
it can't be coincidence. I don't believe in coincidence with my accidents. It, it just seems to me that there was something. Now, it doesn't mean that it was nefarious. It doesn't mean anything else. But remember, there's a lot of systems doing a lot of things at that time as well. So the critical moment is immediately after this handover, when you're essentially in this kind of no man's land in the sky. Yeah, nobody's watching right then. No one was watching. And Flight 370 would vanish. Coming up, a critical mistake by air traffic control with time running out. The aircraft was still flying as we know now. That just is so painful to think about that four hours later, no one's looking yet. In the middle of the night on March 8, 2014, at 1.21 a.m., Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 vanishes into thin air. There's been silence from the cockpit. And by 1.37 a.m., a second flight communication system, ACARS, isn't working either. ACARS was either switched off or it failed. We don't know which, because whatever did happen, this is the crucial moment. We pretty much know that all the comms are disabled, switched off, broken, blown up. As an investigator looking at this, what would the determination be, at least at this point, as to what is happening? At this point, I've got two different paths. One is that that aircraft was taken over and that the systems were intentionally set, shut down. The other side would be that there was a singular failure at a common location. And that singular mechanical failure would have done exactly the same thing. At this point in the investigation, there's no evidence one way or the other. But there would be piles of evidence if ACARS hadn't stopped transmitting. You'd know the air condition of the engines, the route it was taking, the altitudes it was taking. We would know exactly the state of that aircraft. Just the kind of information someone taking over a plane wouldn't want anyone to know. If you were doing something nefarious, then switching off ACOS would be a crucial part of making the plane go dark. The plane was dark and silent. There was still no check-in with Vietnam Air Traffic Control a call former chief pilot Nick Huslan has made thousands of times. You have to be like uh, drunk for you to forget to check in after somebody tells you immediately to check in. Every pilot would want to do that as soon as possible. Anything more than two to three minutes, already abnormal. Around 1.27 a.m., Ho Chi Minh's control center tries to reach the aircraft. They tried the radio, they tried to call and see if MH370 was out there, no response. You attempt to communicate directly with the aircraft first? Right, that's the first thing you do. If that's not successful, then you try to contact other aircraft around, and they did do that. And those airplanes tried to raise MH370 as well, no success. With no response, an air traffic controller in Kuala Lumpur calls Malaysia Airlines for help. I think fundamentally you have to assume Nobody expects one of these planes to fall out of the sky. 
Nobody expects a 777 to vanish. And Malaysia Airlines tells air traffic control a completely different story. They say MH370 hasn't vanished at all, according to their own internal flight tracking system. Malaysia Airlines says, oh, the aircraft's fine. We know exactly where it is. Yet they've had no communication. They've had the none. They've had none. So their system was showing that the aircraft had continued to go on that heading. Over the next hour and a half, Malaysia Airlines gives air traffic control more promising messages. They had exchanged signals with the flight. The plane was in normal condition. And the plane was flying off the coast of Vietnam along its scheduled flight path. And at that point, the guard is let down. You start going in a different direction. You're not search and rescue anymore. You're just trying to communicate. But an hour and a half after that first reassuring message, a tragic realization. Malaysia Airlines now tells air traffic control the information was wrong. We don't know where the aircraft is. Our system told us it was there, but it wasn't. The airline tells air traffic control their flight tracking program was based on flight projection and not reliable for aircraft positioning. Everything went wrong there, everything. It borders on scandal. The airline in the middle of there just offering up just complete red herrings and dead ends. It's inexcusable. At best, the Malaysia Airlines information to air traffic control was unhelpful. At worst, it was downright damaging to getting an investigation and a search underway quickly. Not only did Malaysia Airlines have bad information, air traffic control waited to sound the alarm. I think air traffic control waits so long because it's just the normal confusion of the moment. But at some point in all of this, an air traffic controller can push the big red button that says, help, panic, missing plane. And that's what they didn't do until much later. Not until four hours after it's clear the plane is lost, did air traffic control notify emergency responders? That just is so painful to think about, that four hours later, no one's looking yet. As precious hours pass, time is running out. While Flight 370 flies further and further over one of the world's largest oceans. Coming up, what happened on board Flight 370? We do not know who the perpetrator are. We will never know the reasons why. In the pitch black darkness, minutes after his last radio contact, the Malaysian military spots a blip on its radar. Its speed and flight path erratic. They don't yet know it is MH370. If you see a primary unidentified return flying towards your country at 500 plus knots, that should raise uh, concerns very quickly. 
but it didn't seem to. By now, the 777 is believed to be hundreds of miles off its original course. We don't know what's normal for their military, and I think that a big part of the problem with this investigation is that the Malaysians were very tight-lipped about what they had, what they knew, and when they knew it. The Malaysian Air Force continued to track the plane for an hour until it disappeared from radar. They never tell anyone with civilian authority. Governments don't want to talk about this. They don't want to talk about holes in their radar system, a posture which is not as ready as they want the world to believe it to be. Not only is no one told, nothing is done. No jets are scrambled. The military would say later they chose not to intercept the plane because it was friendly and did not pose a threat to national security. Why would you have an Air Force if it's not capable of doing something like this? That's a big error. That's a big mistake. And, and frankly, the Malaysian government has not really accounted for it in a proper way to these families and to the rest of the world. For David Susi, however, there's a gray area. Here in the United States, we would know that in a heartbeat. Over there, it wasn't set up that way. It was a clear delineation, a firewall between military and civil operations, and the two just didn't meet each other. A missed opportunity. Exactly. On the ground in Beijing, of course, the families waiting patiently for the arrival of Flight 370 knew none of this. Finally, an hour after the plane was expected to land, Malaysia Airlines makes its first public announcement on Facebook. This flight, MH370, lost contact with Subang Air Traffic Control at 2.40 a.m. this morning. It quickly becomes the biggest story in the world. Where is Malaysia Airlines Flight 370? More questions than there are answers. The hunt for Flight 370 now covers millions of square miles. The world's attention turns to the Malaysian government and airline officials. To many critics, they don't seem to know what they're talking about. There was a deer in the headlights component to those early news conferences. And you could almost see them struggling through it, not knowing what they were doing. And we cannot indulge in speculation at this stage. Not understanding how to begin the investigation. There are currently 43 ships and 40 aircraft searching for it. An unprecedented investigation that would baffle the greatest minds in the aviation world and the accident investigation world. They put out information without really corroborating it and much of it turned out to be false. I would like to refer to news reports suggesting, suggesting that the aircraft may have continued flying for some time after last contact. As Malaysian Airlines will confirm shortly, those reports are inaccurate. So they ended up, you know, on both sides of a bad situation with too little information. Even days after the plane disappeared, families believe they aren't being told the truth. This Chinese woman demanded answers just before another press conference in Kuala Lumpur. She didn't get any. After 10 days to two weeks, you know, there was a public perception that was set in stone that the Malaysians were not able to handle this situation and, and that they were having trouble. As far as the images is concerned, are concerned, I don't think we can actually verify when it was, they were taken. I will check with the Australian... Me, hold on, ladies and gentlemen. Sorry, but this is very important. I know, I know, I know it is very important. That is more
Family members were left asking what on earth was happening. And one wonders whose interests are being served or protected by this long wait and something that's increasingly feeling surreal and is rapidly turning into a farce. The main priority area is the orange area. Adding to that, the early conflicting reports on where authorities think the plane actually is and whether it had turned or not. Initially, the Malaysians said there was no turnaround. The transport minister said no turnaround. And he was very definitive, and that was misleading, and that was wrong. It's noticeable in the day and days after he became, he hedged. He hedged. He suddenly, I'm not talking about that. I'm not saying that. We're not commenting on that. Weeks after the flight vanished, Richard Quest put some of those questions to Malaysia's then prime minister. What would you say to the critics, and be blunt, prime minister, who say Malaysia wasted time at various parts of the investigation? I don't think they were fair criticism. You remember when the plane was reported lost, I was briefed that morning, and I took the decision that uh, we must search both areas, the South China Sea and the northern part of the Straits of Malacca. But no one was willing to comment either on the biggest unanswered question. Did MH370 vanish because somebody with intent took over its controls? There is some level of human intervention. This is undoubted. Nick Huslan has piloted the plane thousands of times. We do not know who the perpetrator are. We will never know the reasons why. No matter what scenario you go with, we're deep into the world of crazy. Crazy scenario, obscure scenario, evil scenario, whatever it is, it's, it's, we're in crazy land, right? This is stuff that doesn't happen. But it did happen. A truly astounding mystery. There is only a handful of verifiable facts, and after the confusion, delay, and chaos engendered in the first few weeks, comes this, a completely different search area based purely on mathematics. It's never been done before. They were making it up as they go along. They were using information that was never intended to be used for this purpose. Coming up, searching in all the wrong places. Why was there so much confusion when it came to where to search? We had no idea where that aircraft was, but yet the pressure's on to do something. On the morning of March 8th, four hours after Flight 370 disappears, a search is launched in the South China Sea, east of Malaysia. As with any search, you start where the plane was last seen. We begin this morning with a desperate search at sea after a jet carrying 239 people vanished off the southern coast of Vietnam. But very quickly, overnight, very quickly, there's no debris. They can't find anything from the aircraft. And that's unusual. Even more unusual, searchers also start looking in the opposite direction, hundreds of miles to the west. I sat in the studio 
covering this. And we would look at each other and he'd say, hang on, did he just simply say, did he simply say, we're looking to the West? Yes. That's because newly discovered military radar reveals the plane may have turned back to the West. At the same time, new leads are coming in. Late today, Chinese authorities released satellite photos of what they call a suspected crash site. An international fleet of aircraft and boats are now searching in two different areas. They had to look in the east because that's where debris was allegedly being reported. They had to look in the west because that's where their radar data had told them the plane had gone. But searchers still find nothing. Days turn into weeks, and the search area expands even farther. Why was there so much confusion when it came to where to search? We had no idea where that aircraft was, but yet the pressure's on to do something. Rescue 7-1. It became the biggest oceanic search of all time. This is completely unprecedented on so many levels. Nothing has ever happened quite like this. And into this confusion, suddenly drops the Inmarsat data. Inmarsat, a British company, reports that Flight 370 had exchanged digital signals, known as handshakes, with their satellites. That was a watershed moment, and that changed everything. It changed everything because everyone had thought Flight 370 had gone completely dark. But the discovery of the digital handshakes was proof the plane was in the air for several hours longer than anyone thought. Suddenly, they have evidence that it flew west and south and continued to fly for some six and a half hours. Using complicated calculations, Inmarsat could roughly determine where the plane was going. This is evidence that is kind of getting close to black magic. I mean, it's a, it's a feat of mathematics. And, and ingenuity and reverse engineering, but we just don't know how accurate it is. But it is also the only hard evidence available to investigators, and Malaysia's prime minister at the time, Najib Razak. I asked them again and again, are you sure? And their answer to me was, we are as sure as we can possibly be. He needed to be sure, because based on those calculations, the Prime Minister was about to deliver some very somber news. Flight MH370 ended in the southern Indian Ocean. The southern Indian Ocean, thousands of miles away, where no one could likely have survived. <laughs> Family members were shot, distraught and angry, there would be no rescues. One last hope remained. Could they find the black boxes before they stop emitting pings? You're not in an ivory tower. You haven't got the luxury of time. You've got pingers that may expire. So you've got to say, this is our best guess now. Their best guess is a remote area more than twice the size of California. Good morning. These are all the aircraft flying today. The Australians take over the search. And soon after the Australian ship Ocean Shield lowers its towed pinger locator into the water, pings are detected. Clearly, this is a most promising lead. It was 
wow, again. It was miraculous. They had just put the toad pinger locator in the water. I was convinced this is it. They've got the answer. It's a matter of days. A robotic submarine scours the 329 square mile area where the pings were heard. It's painstakingly slow work. Then, two months later, a massive setback in the search for Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. The U.S. Navy says the underwater pings are not from the plane's black boxes. How big a setback was that? Oh, it was terrible. It felt like we were right back at the beginning again. Back to the beginning, and no closer to solving the mystery of Malaysia Flight 370. Coming up, Authorities investigate the last two men known to be in the cockpit of Flight 370. We need to know what happened. It is not an option not to know. These are the last words heard from the cockpit of Malaysia Flight 370. And the moment the mystery begins. You have a series of events that appear to be human driven. You, know, you have a transponder being turned off, you have an ACAR system being turned off. You have the plane being turned not once, but at least twice, probably three times. And most perplexing, no distress call. There are so many ways to notify people that there's a distress. UHF radios, VHF radios, many, many, many ways. None of that happened. None of it. Could the disappearance of MH370 have been deliberate? To answer that question, Investigators zero in on the last two men known to be in control of the plane, seen here passing through security on the night of the flight. First officer, Farik Hamid, was only 27 years old. Very young to be flying a 777 in the U.S., but had gone through all the, the gates and had passed and was with a very senior guy. That's a perfectly safe scenario. Farik had no known motive and no apparent reason to take down the plane. There was just no indication that there was anything going on in his life other than he had made it. Farik had made it and was on an impressive career trajectory. At 5,000 hours on the 737, you go from a small plane to a big plane, and this was his promotion. CNN aviation correspondent Richard Quest gained permission to fly Malaysia Airlines in February 2014. In an eerie coincidence, it was one of Farik's last training flights on the Boeing 777. There is absolutely no question that he was a qualified, competent pilot. The captain said he was one of the best they had. He landed the aircraft perfectly. You know how to impress people, right? 
One of Farik's next flights would be his last, Malaysia 370. And what about the pilot sitting beside Farik Hamid, Captain Zahari Ahmed Shah, and the flight simulator he had built in his home to practice landings? Yesterday, officers from the Royal Malaysian Police visited the home of the pilot. It seemed like a potential lead until investigators declared it a dead end. The examination of the flight simulators revealed nothing suspicious for the authorities. Like First Officer Farik, Zahari lacked any apparent motive. Many aspects of the case have been centered on the captain. And the more they've looked, the, the less they've found. I just don't see any logic. I don't see any reason why he would want to, uh, to be a rope pilot. Zahari's sister, Sakinab Ahmed Shah, spoke out to Channel News Asia months after the plane's disappearance. He does not, he did not have that kind of makeup. He got married fairly early. Socially, great guy, extremely helpful, and always willing to share. Nick Huslan met Zahari at Malaysia Airlines during the rigorous days of flight school, 35 years ago. We had to polish our shoes until we can see, we can count our teeth in it, you know. Everything was uh, very, very regimented. Above all, Huslan remembers his friend as a skilled and seasoned pilot who loved to fly, seen here in a video tribute posted by his family. He's crazy about flying. He flies real aeroplanes, goes home, builds small toy aeroplanes and flies them. He's got a life of aviation running through his vein. But if it wasn't Zahari and it wasn't Farik, what about the other passengers on Flight 370? Could it have been a hijacking? It would explain the fact that the radios were shut down, possibly systematically. It would explain uh, why there may not have been communication. Are there any suspects? They've gone through everybody on the aircraft and they've determined that there is no one there that would match the profile of someone who would take over that aircraft. If not human intervention, could something on the plane have malfunctioned? It's got to fly for another six hours. That's the problem with the mechanical questions. What kind of catastrophe could shut down the plane's communications but still have allowed it to fly? Anybody that chooses to hang their hat on one scenario or the other, in my view, is heading uh, for, for, for a fall. The entire experience of air crash investigations is that, yes, it's usually the obvious, but it's quite frequently, it's something you've never even thought of. There's no way to know until the black boxes are found. Until you find the plane, how can you rule anybody, anything out? What you can't, what you'll know from the black boxes is what happened. What you won't know necessarily is why. There are no black boxes inside human beings. That's what we need in this case. Our best hope of solving one of the greatest mysteries of all time is presumably somewhere in the Indian Ocean. We need to know what happened. We need to know whether this plane came down at the point of a gun, by the hand of the pilot, or whether by mechanical failure. It is not an option not to know. Coming up, 
a brand new search for answers begins in the Indian Ocean. It's a big, big hunk of ocean. It's as remote as you can get and still be on this planet. The southern Indian Ocean, rough, remote, forbidding. When we look at that route, as pilots, we all look at the charts and we look for the waypoints and the airways. There aren't any. It's as remote as you can get and still be on this planet. This is where experts believe the wreckage of Flight 370 may lie. Finding it, an immeasurable challenge. Put the analogy of what we've got out there at the moment, we're not searching for a needle in a haystack, we're still trying to define where the haystack is. That was March of 2014, when this vessel, the Ocean Shield, set out in hopes of finding the plane, and failed. Now this is no easy task. We have very good techniques for detecting needles in haystacks. We have high confidence that if we've got the right haystack, we'll find the needle in it. The Australian Transportation Safety Bureau was leading the search with Chief Commissioner Martin Dolan in charge. It's six days sailing out from the coast of Australia. We're operating at the range towards the limits of the equipment that's available to us, which is the best equipment available. In May 2015, after the initial efforts turned up nothing, they doubled the size of the priority search area. It is a huge area and it's a complicated area with valleys and ocean mountains and crevices. Complex terrain is not the only challenge they faced. You're grinding through high seas, strong winds, incredibly difficult conditions. They've had to winterize the ships so that they could keep searching throughout the brutal winter. It wasn't easy and it wasn't cheap. The most expensive search in human history, period. This is all uncharted territory, literally and figuratively. Yet 16 months of scouring the priority search zone yielded nothing. Not a single shred of evidence, not a one. Is it possible there's floating wreckage out there and we just haven't seen it? As time goes on, it's very hard to say that. I mean, eventually the stuff washes up. Something washes up. Finally, in July 2015, something did wash up. Debris found off the coast of Reunion Island in the Indian Ocean. Thousands of miles from the search area, beach cleaners found debris on a remote island near Madagascar. What they found was an extremely intricate part of the wing. It's known as the flapperon. French investigators later confirmed it was from the missing plane. The first real discovery in a year and a half, and the first evidence that MH370 didn't simply vanish. 
It confirms that flight MH370 ended in the Southern Indian Ocean. It doesn't tell us where, it doesn't tell us how, but it gives you that closure for the families. It tells you the plane ended up in the water. But for family members like Sarah Bajak, true closure won't come until the crash site is found. In the absence of a body, how do you not hold out hope? How could you just walk away from the, the potential, however small it is, that, that some miracle has happened? Hope would cling to the more than 30 pieces of debris that have washed ashore in the five years since the plane's disappearance. But so far, no miracles. There's more than a thousand 777s out there. That speaks to the crucial nature of finding the aircraft. Not just for the humanitarian reasons of those on board, but they've got to know what happened. And the only way you're gonna do it is to find the aircraft. Will we find it? I hope so. As long as we continue to look, there'll be a chance it will be found. Since its disappearance, investigators have searched over 144,000 square miles in the southern Indian Ocean. In a final safety report published in 2018, investigators from eight countries reveal they don't know much more than they did five years ago. The reason for the loss of communication? Why did the plane change its flight path? Where did the plane end up? They don't know. To date, the investigation could not determine the cause of the disappearance of MH370. 239 passengers and crew remain missing.